We are in a relatively tough passage of Matthew, in a relatively tough section of Matthew. Jesus dealing with some final things with the Pharisees just before he gets to the climax, which is his death on a cross. And so uh, if you feel like this has been a rough couple of weeks listening to Jesus uh, combat the Pharisees, well, there's more weeks to come through it. So uh, just brace yourselves. Reading through Matthew's gospel and seeing the Pharisees and the chief priest's rejection, it's easy for us to set up ourselves as judges, as their critics and their judges, saying something like this, I'd never treat Jesus that way. Have you ever read this section of Matthew and ever been like, they're idiots. I would have never done that. I would have never asked Jesus, what authority do you have to do these things? If I lived in Jerusalem while he was there, I would have faithfully followed and never looked back. If, I hope I'm not the only one that's ever thought that and been that kind of judgmental <laughs> critic to the Pharisees, but there's, there's thoughts like that sometimes when we read the narrative. Here's the thing. Those thoughts are nice to say, I, I wouldn't have been like the Pharisees. That's nice, but it's overly optimistic. And it tends to overlook the ways that we have Pharisaical rejection against Jesus today, even as church-going Christians. Now, again, tough section. If you read ahead, you had the chance not to come to church, but you're here. So let's just deal with this. How are some of the ways that we replicate this kind of pharisaical rejection of Jesus in our own daily lives today? You see, the Pharisees had a very similar thought about themselves. They uh, built elaborate tombs and memorials to the prophets who had been formerly killed and persecuted. So Isaiah, who was sawn in half, Zechariah, who was stoned to death. There were memorials that these Pharisees built for them. And these Pharisees would claim things like this. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. See, they had a very similar optimism we would have been different. If we lived when Isaiah was around, we might have stood up and shouted for the people to let him live. If Zechariah was there, we would have thrown our bodies right next to his and been stoned right alongside of him. And it didn't quite work out that way for him, did it? You see, in having this overly optimistic view of themselves that they wouldn't have been the ones to persecute the prophets, they actually end up being the ones who kill the son, who kill the Messiah. In the same way, there may be a few of us here today that would say, I would never reject Jesus the way the Pharisees did. And yet a closer inspection, a dangerously closer inspection might reveal that you reject Jesus in the same way all the time. I hate my job sometimes, (laughs) but this is one of those times where it's like, hey, friends, Don't be overly optimistic in your religion. Don't be overly optimistic in your spiritual health because closer inspection might reveal you're not as healthy as you think you are. And it's only in recognizing that and being clear and honest about that, that we can actually then repent and become healthier. But sometimes we have to step back and say, yeah, these Pharisees are crazy, They're God-rejecting people. 
They reject the son, but be careful of too quickly saying, I would never reject Jesus in that way. Because if you're like me, there's times very well that you might have done it on Monday. You might have just done it last night. We reject Jesus in various subtle ways. So here's the question. Jesus' interaction with the chief priest in Matthew 21 and 22 invites us to ask the diagnostic question to see whether we have a nominal faith and thus a rejecting heart or if we have a real true dependence on Christ. You see, our church doesn't exist to make you feel good about your religion. Our church exists to stir you up to real faith, true faith, absolute dependence. And that comes with really uncomfortable questions and conversations. So here's some of the questions we're going to look at today. How do I respond to God's authority? How do I respond to God's authority? That's a question that reveals whether you have a secretly God-rejecting heart, Jesus-rejecting heart, or a true heart of faith and dependence. The next question, have I repented? Have I repented? The third question, do I give Jesus his proper place as the cornerstone of my life? And then finally, do I prepare for the wedding feast of Christ? Now, all these questions are massively important for you, and I beg you not to too quickly just say, yes, 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 yes. Instead, inspect your life, evaluate, look in closely. Do these things actually describe you? Or do they actually reveal upon this closer inspection a God-rejecting heart that needs to be repented of? So, as a quick review, in the last few days... Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. He's signaled to all that he is the humble king, the son of David. He's cleansed the temple. He's driven out money changers and and, uh, all the people doing business inside of the temple. And so now he can be found teaching in the temple, healing blind men, healing lame men, doing the work that we would expect the son of David to do. Now, naturally, Jesus' bold insinuation that the temple had become one ginormous idol uh, ruffled a few feathers. It made some people mad. And so they're looking for opportunities to take this guy down. We want to take him down, and not just in the secret way where he just disappears. We want to publicly obliterate him in front of everybody. This is now the obsessive goal of the chief priests and the Pharisees, to have Jesus publicly lose his credentials as the son of David. Everything they're about right now is seeking to topple him. So they come to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? That's their first concern. Now, I I just want to point out something that, you know, kind of left me wondering. They never stopped to ask whether what Jesus was doing was right. They just wanted to know what right he had to do what was right. Do you see the key concern? It's not a question of, is it right? It's a key concern of, who is he? Guys, I deal with this as a pastor all the time. I'll say something, someone said, well, who are you? Well, it doesn't matter who I am, but is it right? I'm nobody. Jesus was somebody, but they didn't really care what he was doing. They weren't looking at the fact that he was driving out idolatry. They weren't looking at the fact he was calling people to repentance and giving restoration to the blind and the lame. All they wanted to know is what right does he have? 
my friends. This is part of the reason why they are called a brood of vipers throughout Matthews. They're, they're serpents. And if you know the serpent theme in Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis 3, the serpent is constantly trying to usurp the authority of God. And that's what they're doing here. Jesus doesn't get into these kinds of squabbles with them. He makes them think. I think Jesus is out after their repentance just as much as he's out after the repentance of others. He wants them to repent. That's why he doesn't get into these, uh, these obsessive legal battles with them. He says this. He says that he will answer their question if they will answer his question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? That's a well-asked question. This is really wise of Jesus to do. Why? Because if you go back to Matthew 3, 3, we recall how the Pharisees and the priests were coming from Jerusalem to see John's baptism. And John called them a brood of vipers, literally the offspring of the serpent. He identifies them as such and then calls them to repentance. So he tells them, you're sinners, you're rejecting God, you're opposing God, repent. Did any of them repent? No. So here's the thing. If they say that John's baptism was from man. In other words, that he was only a man working in man's authority and not from God's commission like a prophet did. Then they're going to have to deal with the crowds who thought that John was a prophet. They're basically going to have to accept that they've just lost their political power. Now, if they say from heaven, they're going to reveal themselves to be spiritually dirty if he, is from, if he was sent by God from heaven, if his baptism is of God, then why did they never repent? You see the rock in the hard place? My friends, how often do we do that? We want to find some kind of snake-like hold to where we come out spiritually clean looking, while at the same time in the favor of men. And we make our decisions like that all the time. Now, what would have been great is if the Pharisees would have just humbly said, we rejected him, and it was a sin, and then repentance, right? That's, that's what we want them to do. That's not what they do. They, they kind of float in between what's going to keep our political power, what's going to keep our, our popular favor with people, give us the most bang for the buck in the sense of everybody else is going to respect us, while at the same time, we don't have to admit that we're spiritually needy people. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a very pharisaical place to be, where we care more about what people think, we care more about looking clean, than we do about actually repenting. And it's led many a men into disaster and destruction and ruin. Families have been broken over that kind of hypocrisy. And so they know that this is what Jesus is trying to do. So they come back, after much deliberation, and they say, probably the best thing they can say at this point, we don't know. Now, you know what this reveals about them? They're spiritually blind. They can't discern whether John's baptism was from God, which we know clearly and evidently that it was, or whether it's from man. If they can't discern John's baptism, if they can't understand the ministry of the forerunner, they will not understand the Messiah. They are spiritually blind. They can't discern. They are they're blind guides, as Jesus calls them later. They can't tell what's from God and what's from not. 
what's from man. They can't tell. They can't discern. So Jesus refuses to ask, answer their question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because here's the thing. If Jesus says, my authority has come from God himself, what are they going to do? Blasphemy. Kill him. If Jesus says, my authority is from man, what are they going to do? Kill him. <laughs> they're blind and they're stuck in their rejection. All they want is Jesus dead. And so Jesus instead turns it back on them and says, in your question of what authority I have to do these things, you're revealing your own spiritual blindness. As it applies to us, I think it's worth asking the question, how do we respond to the authority of God? You see, one of the things that the Pharisees hated about Jesus was he was introducing a plan of God that they didn't want. God had a plan which included, actually, believe it or not, destruction of the temple. Because why do you need the temple now that the temple, Jesus, is here? It's redundant. So it included the destruction of the temple. It didn't include an embarrassing onslaught of the Romans. And it included sinners and tax collectors. They didn't like that. They were like, whoa, nobody passed these blueprints by us. So they didn't like God's authoritative will and plan to set up his reign in the midst of tax collectors and sinners. And that then guess what? God forbid the nations would then repent and believe in God. They didn't like that. And so what do they do? They reject God, his authority, his plan, and his Messiah. What do you do? Just as a practical question, what do you do when you find out that God's will might take you somewhere you don't want to go? How do we respond when we find out that God's plan for our lives might be suffering? Might be attending church with people we wouldn't necessarily hang out with. Might mean a disruption to your status quo. How do we respond to that? Do we accept it? Or do we subtly turn the finger back on God? By what authority do you do these things? I mean, they don't realize they're talking to God himself as he's teaching in the temple. The thing the entire Old Testament has been waiting for, for God to visit his people in the temple and to heal the lame, the blind, the beggars, the hurting, for prostitutes and tax collectors to find redemption. They are seeing it, Isaiah 65, before their very eyes. They don't want it. By what authority do you have to do these things? My friends, it's interesting. We, we claim to be the people of God. We claim to be the people under God's authority. And then the scriptures tell us to do something that we don't want to do. How then do you respond? When God says, make your missional efforts the primary goal of your life, do you respond with, well, great. Who do I set up dinner with? Which neighbors have I gotten to meet? Or does that go on the back burner? Because by what authority does God have to tell you that your, your dinner time appointments with your neighbors is more important than your business meeting? Who is God to tell us that those people should be able to sing with us? My friends, how do we respond to the authority of God? When God wants to take you places you don't want to go, do you go and follow? 
Or do you ask that question without even asking whether it's right? You just ask, well, what right does he have? And you see, in asking this question, they betray, these Pharisees, these chief priests betray their inward rejection of God's authority. They don't want what God wants. Not only that, they're totally set up against it. Totally set up against it. Many a churches are broken and ruined and shut down today with chains and locks on the doors because they set themselves up against God. The community changed. God brought different people. Instead of asking, God, how do you want us to reach these people? They say, not those people. Guess what? They're dead. God will take out the candle stand. God will tear down temples. God will take out Pharisees when they don't want to go where he wants to go because that is a rejection of him. We either accept God's plan, God's will, God's desires, God's commands above all else. Or here's the scary reality. Your heart has rejection against God in it. That's the simple message of scripture there. We either want what God wants or we don't. Let me just ask you, do you want what God wants? Do you accept his authority as the father, the divine designer? Or are you still saying, no, this is my life, my church, my ministry, my money, my house, my car, my friends, rather than seeing them as his, and he has divine authority to do what he wills. Here's the next question. Have you repented? Jesus now launches into three different parables that all have different points, right? And it's amazing how Jesus can do this. I'm I'm not that great of a storyteller, but Jesus can bring a story and have one particular point, tell another story that's very similar and have a different particular point in it. Well, this first parable deals with the issue of repentance. He talks about a man that has two sons. The father comes to the first son. He says, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son says, nah, dad, I don't think I will. Video games are more important right now. But then as the day wears on, the son changes his mind and goes to the vineyard, like his father said. The father goes to the second son and says, go into the vineyard today. And the son says, sure, dad, I will. Never does. If you have teenagers, you can sympathize with this parable. And, and the question is, is which one is really obedient? The one who initially kind of, oh, I don't think I will, but then does it? Or the one that says that they will, but then never does? Tyus, did you make your bed? Yeah, dad, I did. Why are your covers in the floor, man? <laughs> That's like real true obedience means actually doing, repenting, that change of mind. Jesus' point in saying this is he wants them to see which of the two sons actually did the will of God. Was it the one that said he would do the will of the Father? Or was it the one who actually did the will of the Father? You see, his question isn't which one was more agreeable to it. That's not his question. Which one verbally assented to do the will of God? Which one said they would obey? No, his question is which one did the will of God, the will of the Father? That's the question. So what made the first son obedient? What makes him different than the second son? Jesus says, he changed his mind. 
He changed his mind. That's a picture of repentance. While he initially rebelled, he had a change of mind which led him to repentance. The second, however, only verbally assented to obey God and never really did. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to help them see, you see, it's the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the dirty people in society that are going into the kingdom ahead of you. Why? Because yes, they initially rebelled. Yes, they were initially against the will of God, but they changed their minds. They repented. Well, the Pharisees never repented. My friends, how do you feel about that? How does it stick you that traitorous tax collectors, them liberals, that sleazy prostitutes entered the kingdom before white-robed Pharisees? You see, the key issue is repentance. That's what leads us to the vineyard, repentance and faith. It's not just saying that we're okay with going to the vineyard. It's not just uh, verbally assenting that we're going to, it's not outward religiosity. It's not looking the father in the eye, nodding their head and saying, yeah, 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 we'll go, but then never going. It's actual repentance that the father wants, the change of mind to go, to go into the vineyard. Many of professing Christians believe they are in the vineyard simply because they outwardly agree it's a good thing to go to the vineyard. Many of Christians have pointed to their own positions and think they're good with God simply because of what they said. Simply because of what they do. You know, I, I post about Jesus once a week. That doesn't mean you've entered the vineyard. My friends, God doesn't just want your words. He doesn't just want your outward religion. He wants your heart. He wants your change of mind. He wants you to leave your old sins and to come to him. He wants action. Enter the vineyard. Change the mind and go. Don't just say that's a good idea. Don't just think it's a good idea. Do you repent? My friends, we point to our superficial works all the time as proof that we're entering the vineyard and all the while people are passing us by going into the kingdom of God because they have truly repented and had faith. That's what God wants. He wants you to repent of your sin. He wants you to undergo a repentant mind and a repentant heart. He wants you to make war on your sin. My friends, you can verbally assent that abortion is wrong till you're blue in the face. If you still have a porn addiction, you have not changed your mind. You are the second son who says, yeah, 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 but never goes. My friends, if you know That God's word says that you as a husband must die on the cross for your wife. You as a wife must submit and follow your husband in love. And yet you've got a better way. You might verbally say, yeah, yeah, that's right. But then never do it. You've not repented. You see, the repentance is actually doing what the father says to do in all forms. And to reject our own way, to reject our own kingdom, to reject the commands that we would give ourselves to follow the command of God. That's the hard teaching of it is you might look good, you might be a white-robed Pharisee, but until you change your mind and actually go where the Father wants you to go, you've not repented. 
and rebellion rests in the heart. Now, the second parable asks this question. Do I give Jesus his proper place as the cornerstone of my life? As the cornerstone. We'll talk about that here in a minute. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, if you have read the Old Testament, you know that sounds pretty close to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And so you know that right off the bat, the vineyard that's being planted, the master who's planting this vineyard is God. The vineyard that's being planted is Israel. This is the people of God that he's brought into the land. And it's not new to, to think of Israel as the tenants, God as the, land, as the landlord. He's the one that owns the land. They live on his land. They're to do things his way, and they are to give him the fruit of faith, repentance, obedience, love, adoration, worship. Well, here's how the parable goes. He plants the vineyard. He moves the tenants onto the vineyard. And he tells them to work and keep it, right? Sounds pretty familiar to us. But then comes the time for fruit. Harvest time is here. Now it's time for the master to get his fruit. It's his land. It's his fruit. They're to give him what he is due. And what happens? Well, he sends his servants to go collect. It's time to collect. And, and, and as we see, these are the prophets. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. That's pretty explicitly talking about Zechariah the prophet from Second Chronicles. 24, the only prophet that we know of that was deliberately stoned as a rejection of God while he was speaking the word of God. So some they beat, some they killed, and some they stoned. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So they're just slaughtering this master's servants one by one who's calling for the fruits that he owns. This is his due. He has every right to this. They are stealing from him. So what does he do? He decides to send his son. They will respect my son. Surely my son, they'll, they'll listen to him. He's not just a servant. He's the heir. Well, what do they do? They see the son coming from far off and they say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. My friends, if you want a picture of a sinful heart, this is what sinners do. We should respect the son. Master's right. We should listen to him. But when he's far off, we're like, this is the air. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. What would we do if we had God in our presence? We've already proven it. When Jesus took on flesh, we'd slaughter him. Why? Because we don't want a God to tell us what he's due, what, he, what is his. We want autonomy. We want freedom. We want independence. The sinful, natural heart wants to be free to be its own master of the vineyard. So they kill the son. Now at this point, the chief priests don't understand that Jesus is talking about them. They don't understand that they're the ones. That though they might not have killed the prophets, they'll kill the son. And that'll put them right in line with the ones that killed the prophets. They're the same God-rejecting people that has always been there who rejects God, kills the son, takes the vineyard for themselves. They don't understand it. So Jesus asked them, what do you think is going to happen? And these people are very right. He'll put those wretches to a miserable, I mean, they're, they're vehement, right? It's kind of a Nathan and David moment. You know, when Nathan brought it to David, that a man had stolen a lamb and slaughtered it while he had a big flock, you know, that story. And then Nathan turns the finger and says, you're the man. 
This is one of those. The Pharisees are like, he should kill those wretches, put them to a miserable death. And Jesus is like, you're the men. You're the ones that have killed the son and have killed the servants and not given the due fruit. He's going to let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. So without even knowing it, they speak their own impending judgment on themselves. That they are the ones that have done this. And because of that, they were the ones that, that will receive condemnation from God himself. Now, after they've spoken this condemnation on, them, on themselves, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Jesus' conclusion to all that. They might reject him. They throw him out of the vineyard. They kill him. But that's not all there is. Something else is happening here. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Now, if you go back and read that again in Psalm 118, read the whole chapter, you find out that what the psalmist is talking about is God's, God's faithfulness to vindicate and save his righteous people, right? So, so his righteous people may be suffering, they're surrounded by enemies, they're being slaughtered, but that's not the end of the story. These people that are being rejected as trash stones are actually being built into a cornerstone. Well, in this case, it applies perfectly to Jesus. To them, he is nothing but a rebel messiah. Somebody who's stirring up the people against the status quo. He's just somebody that needs to be thrown away. And yet, when they take him out of the vineyard, slaughter him, kill him, and reject him, guess what? He becomes the cornerstone. Now, what's the cornerstone? Every building has a cornerstone at some point. I believe they still do anyway. Um, But especially the older buildings. That was the stone that everything rested upon. It distributed the weight in such a way that that cornerstone bore the weight. To, To be on a cornerstone is to be dependent on it, be situated on it, resting upon it. And so here's the choice that Jesus is giving them. Either they see him as a cornerstone upon which everything rests, or they're the ones that he describes in, verses, in verse 44. They're the ones that the stone falls on, or they fall on the stone and are broken into pieces. Or the stone falls on them and they're crushed. You see, there's only two choices in life. We like to complicate it. We, we make our relationship with Jesus, almost like a Facebook status. It's complicated, right? It's really not. Your relationship with Jesus is not that complicated. It comes to one of two things. Either you depend on him as your cornerstone, or you don't, and you're crushed by him. Either you trust in him, love him, make him the most important thing in your life, most important person in your life. You don't put him on this you know, arbitrary list of hierarchies. He's just the Lord that you rest upon or you're totally against him. My friends, you can go back to every single sin that you have done and you can track down a motivation to be the Lord of your own life. A motivation to depend on yourself. A motivation to seek out your own satisfaction. Why is the porn economy such a big deal today? Because it's filled with men who are seeking out their own satisfaction, who don't believe it should be up to the Lord to satisfy us. It shouldn't be up to the Lord to tell us where we drink of the waters of pleasure. 
We should be able to decide that for ourselves. We should even be so far to be able to break it down into categories. I mean, it's disgusting. I don't know if y'all have been keeping it up, but Pornhub is, is in a massive onslaught with Canada right now. It's getting taken down and embarrassed. And it's the best redemptive, redemptive thing I've seen in recent days. I mean, Pornhub is disgusting enough that it's got all these links to, you want blondes, you want browns, you want darker skin tone. I mean, you can, you can pick all the options like a checkbox, what kind of nasty little dirty perverted sin that you can watch. I hate on porn because I know that that's an underlying issue. We'd also talk about gossip. We'd also talk about greed. We could also talk about self-exaltation. Any of these things ultimately are rooted in a self-dependence that wants satisfaction from what I can do, from what I can bring in. I don't want to depend on God. I want to have satisfaction elsewhere. Greed, just simply saying, it's not good enough what he's given. I want more. Self-exaltation. I'm in competition with God. Pride, that's all it is. Murder. Who is he to decide who should live and who should die? Every single sin reveals that you're trying to be the cornerstone of your own life. It's that simple. So the question is, is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Do you depend on him? Trust in him? Do you find yourself repenting at moments that you are in sin? Because we all do sin. We all break into this leaving the, the river for these broken cisterns. We leave the cornerstone for these crumbled rocks. We do that all the time. But when that happens, do you come back, repent, change your mind, and build your rest and your satisfaction upon Christ the cornerstone? My friends, if Jesus is a nice little accessory to you, he's not your cornerstone. If Jesus and the church is the place where you stir up clientele, Jesus is not your cornerstone. If Jesus and the church is something you do just to feel better about yourself, so that your week looks somewhat better, yeah, I did all those things, but I went to church. Jesus is not your cornerstone. How do you know Jesus is your cornerstone? You depend on him more than anything else. You need him. Not just a nicety. He's not just an accessory. He's water. He's life. He's breath and, and, and the air that you need to fill your lungs. That's who Jesus is when you see Jesus properly. My friends, we have allowed the world to bring us into all kinds of dis- debates where we have put Jesus on the back burner. We've put Jesus in the corner. Yeah, 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 yeah. We know Jesus and we'll put him over here. But there's other things to talk about. My friends, no. Our life is built on one rock. When we discuss politics, do people sense that we have one cornerstone? When we discuss finances, do people understand we have one cornerstone? When we discuss what we love, what we hope for, what we dream about, what we desire, what we want with everything in our being, do they hear our absolute satisfaction and rest on one cornerstone? You can't put Jesus in the corner. He's already there. (laughs) 
and the whole building rests on him. Don't backburner Jesus. That's what you do with the potatoes. Jesus is the steak. We talked about food this morning. I blame it on that. My friends, that's the question. Where does Jesus fit in the priorities of your life? My friends, we have a lot of priorities, don't we? We have a lot of things we hope in, don't we? But the question is, is do you depend on Jesus or your own savviness? Your own intellect? Your own morality? Your own street smarts? Or do you depend on Jesus? Now here's the next question. So we've, we've gone through, how do I respond to God's authority? Have I repented? Do I see Jesus as the cornerstone of my life? Not what, I, not what I do for God as the cornerstone, but Jesus and what he has done as the cornerstone. The next question, do I prepare for the wedding feast of Christ? Do I prepare for the wedding feast of Christ? My friends, there's just some things in life that deserve as much preparation as possible. Um, in my family, about you know, December 1st, our whole house is busy doing one thing, getting ready for Christmas. You want to know why? Because it deserves that kind of celebration. 25 days of Christmas is a thing at our house because it deserves celebration. 25 days of eating peppermint Hershey's Kisses. 25 days of eating white hot chocolate with, I didn't get any amens on that. That's weird. White heart chocolate, dark hot chocolate, chocolate bombs. I mean, come on, you pour it out. 25 days of preparation for Christmas. Why? Because it deserves 25 days of celebration. My friends, we have something better than Christmas coming. Jesus tells a parable about this wedding feast. Now, we talked this morning in Sunday school about a biblical theology of feasting. And Jesus here taps into that theme of feasting. The king wants to throw a feast for his son, a wedding meal. Okay, so the son that was killed in the last parable is now the son that's celebrated at the wedding feast. The invitation goes out. He sends out his servants. And listen to what happens. This is, this is sad, okay? If you know anything about feasts and the theme of feasts, then this is Isaiah 25, right? Isaiah 25 talks about the last day when God sets up a feast on his holy mountain and he gives food to all the people, and they are full and satisfied, wine dripping and food just delicious. I mean, you talk about the best turkeys and the best pot roast. I mean, it's, it's all there. And they all eat in the presence of God. And so that feast in this parable is ready. It's ready. The table's set. The seat arrangements are made. The centerpieces are placed. Now it's time to come. Come and eat. Dinner bell is ringing. What do you think people do when that dinner bell rings? But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. That seems to be very surprising to me. You see, this invitation is also a command. It's not really, it's not really an arbitrary come if you want. It's come to the feast. Come, eat. And one guy says, I got some things I need to do first. I'm going to go to the farm. I got some things I got to do there. I've got business today. I got some emails and a couple of corporate meetings today. And then the rest of them just like, we don't want to go. 
So they killed the servants. Now it's interesting that Jesus treats the busy people the same way that he treats the absolute outward rejecting people. The people who are too busy for God, for the king's feast, are slaughtered in the same city where the people killed the servants. You see, he treats them the same. I know we may not like that fact, and we may not like looking at it that way, but that's another simplicity that we have overlooked. We made it complicated. Yes, I love God, but I've got a busy life, and he understands. Not so sure he does the way that you think he does. Here's the issue. None of these people, the ones that went back to the farm, the ones that went to their business, the ones that killed the servants, none of them treated the invitation as an urgent command of God, of the king. Like this was their agenda for the day. This was the number one smart goal. Okay, we talk about smart goals in corporations. This was the smartest goal that you could have. Go to the wedding feast. And they refused. My friends, can I ask you, what does your priority list look like? When you're invited to feast in the mornings, your Bible's open, you're ready, you got your cup of coffee, you're ready to spend some time with the Lord, does it get interrupted by the business emails? By the Facebook dings on your little notification timeline? Let me ask you, when it, when it comes to that why in the road between choosing a healthy, growing relationship with the Lord and staying in bed, which one do you go with? This is not a message for the American church because the American church doesn't like this kind of why in the road, but it exists in Scripture. When you got lots to do on the farm, lots to do in the business, when you got lots to do and you got tons of goals and there's urgent things. People are pressing in on you and they want you now. Do you stop and say, whoa, this is my time to eat. It's the wedding feast. My friends, we do that so often and so naturally. I do that often and naturally. How often do we just put the things of God on the back burner, thinking surely God will understand. Thank God we're not in a legalistic system where I have to be, do these things to be saved. You're right, we don't live in that system. But what you give your urgent time to, what you're constantly thinking about, what you're constantly emailing about, what you're constantly look adding, looking, look adding, at, look adding, is that a thing? <laughs> looking at, man, I've done this too much. Um, those things ultimately reveal the affections of your heart. Have you ever stopped to think that the fact that you haven't had a deep devotion with the Lord in a long, long time may not be evidence that God doesn't love you anymore, because it's not, but it might be evidence that you don't love God anymore. You see, your salvation is not on the line. You've been saved by grace through faith. But the, the, the more awkward thing is the fact that we don't prioritize the things of God we don't like being together. We don't like worshiping together. We don't like reading the scriptures together. We don't like making a priority of church. We'll, we'll come maybe one Sunday out of, out of the four. We don't really like talking about Jesus that much. Maybe those things are not pointing you to the fact that you've been rejected by God because you, you can believe in Jesus and not do those things and be saved. 
But here's the more awkward point. It might be proof that you're not as grateful as you should be. Or that you love God like you should. My friends, do you prioritize the wedding feast? There's also a danger in presuming that we'll just get there. We'll just get there. That, that's what Jesus explains in the next part of the parable. He says, sure, I may not be, pri- there's a guy there, maybe that's like you. Sure, I may not be prioritizing my spiritual growth in the gospel as much as I should, but God's a good guy. He'll let me in any way. Again, thank God we're not in the legalistic system. That presumption's really dangerous. You see, the king comes out after all the guests are there, and he finds one man without a wedding garment. Do you want to know what that says about the one man? He didn't make preparations to come. He didn't make it an urgent matter. Whether he didn't get his dry cleaning done or whether he didn't pull it out of the closet, he walks in with this really arrogant presumption that the king's just a good guy and will let him in. My friends, when it comes to the kingdom, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Either it's your one hope and your one obsession, or it's nothing to you. You can debate with me all day, and you will not find scripture telling you that it is okay, and you're okay, and you're healthy to put the kingdom on the back burner. I dare you to do that Bible study. God wants all or nothing. Either prepare for the kingdom feast or you're not really preparing at all. Man, those are some hard questions, aren't they? God says many are called, but few are chosen. That's a hard piece of scripture there, isn't it? Let me just ask you though. If you just give those questions an honest shake, just allow them to just kind of sit there. If you were to answer them honestly, how would you see your own life? Do you question the authority of God? What right does he have to take you places you don't want to go? Do you harbor secret sin in your life and refuse to repent? You don't actually ever drift into obedience? Do you actually depend and trust on Jesus? And are you making it your daily obsession to get ready for that wedding feast to come? One day, here's the thing. All your busy agendas, all your time, all the things that you spent time on, the dangerous thing is is some of us are going to realize how much time we wasted. And we're going to regret that. We're going to desperately regret that. But by God's grace, we'll be at the kingdom's table. Here's the good news. What's bad news for Pharisees? What's bad news for the utter religious that are trusting in their religion and their white limestone temples and not in God himself is good news for sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, formerly rebellious sons. My friends, if your pharisaical feathers have been ruffled, what is bad news for you might be good news to the prostitute sitting right next to you. Because the kingdom's for people like them who humble themselves, who don't presume upon their righteousness, their morality, their good old boyness. The kingdom is for the broken, for the sick. So if you've been hurt up here, find hope down here, because that's where the gospel is it's for the broken.
for the prostitutes and tax collectors. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper the way we do, is we remember that we're not in the kingdom because we have it all together. In fact, we're in the kingdom because we are broken people. Now, instead of presuming upon ourselves that we are kingdom citizens, we look to Jesus and say, he's the reason why. It's because of his broken body, his spilled blood that I'm in the kingdom. So today, we take the Lord's Supper, fully acknowledging, you know what? We're the dirty sinners that, were, that Christ died for. We're not the somewhat sanctified Pharisees. That's not us. We're the Matthews sitting at the table. We're the Samaritan woman, women at the well. We're the ones that are broken and we have come and we have drank deeply because we recognize we're thirsty. My friends, Jesus would eventually die and he would die for the sins of his own people. He'd be buried and he would raise again so that people like you could be brought into the kingdom. Now, are you ready for the wedding feast? Are you living for that and that alone? Father God, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace. God, we ask, Lord, that you continue to be with us. Father, let us not just presume that we wouldn't have been like those dirty, nasty Pharisees who tried to reject Jesus. Lord, let us actively repent of our own rejection of Jesus all the time. Father, there's times that we may say things that sound good and do things that look good, but Father, without an active, real affection for Christ without seeing him as our all in all, without stop, stopping the prioritization of everything else and to start allowing him to reign as Lord and King and the chief desire. God, we simply will not do the will of God if that, that never happens. So Father, I pray today that there will be people who will honestly assess. God, I pray against those who have filters, God, I pray that you will break their filters and allow them to humble themselves to hear your word for them. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.